Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, you're listening to the new episode of Talking France, a free podcast produced by The Local in which we bring listeners up to date with everything, well, almost everything that's going on in France. This week we'll be discussing why storm clouds are gathering over the French Parliament and why the next few weeks and months look set to be tempestuous for President Emmanuel Macron and his government. We'll lay out the battles that lie ahead and what's likely to happen. And we'll also hear about yet more of Macron's ministers and advisers landing in hot water and what it could all mean for the president. We'll look at why French towns are boycotting the world's biggest sporting event. We'll discuss an historic moment for the Paris Metro and we'll hear from you about what you think is the best part of France's coastline. Are French workers really always on strike? We'll look at whether there's any truth to that common cliché. To do all this, in one half an hour episode, I'll be calling on the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and our French politics expert, John Litchfield. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jen. Good to have you back with us for a new episode of Talking France. And we'll start with the talking points, as usual. This week, we're going to start with who's been in the news in France. Emma, rarely does a month go by without a member of Macron's government or team being in the headlines for getting into hot water. This week, we've had two. One a minister, the other is right-hand man who could face trial. Before we bring in John to find out what this all means for the president, just fill us in on who these pair are and why they're in trouble. Well, these are two two people, two men, who both this week have been charged with the criminal offence of conflict of interest, although these are actually completely separate cases. It's just a coincidence that they happen to have been both charged this week. They've been what's called mise en examen, which literally translates as put under examination. And this is the stage of the police investigation where a judge decides that they have a case to answer. It's usually translated into English as charged, although it's not exactly the same, but it means they're now likely to face trial for this criminal charge. Okay, two of them are under mise on examen. Uh, who's the first one? First one is Eric Dupont-Moretti. And just to compound the embarrassment for the Macron government, he's actually the justice minister. He's charged with ordering investigations into magistrates with whom he'd fallen out with his previous career as a lawyer, basically using his ministerial role to settle personal scores. He denies this and he says the investigations were actually instigated by Justice Department officials. Now, French ministers, they don't actually have to be career politicians or even elected representatives to become ministers. It's actually quite common for experts in a particular field to be appointed as the minister, and Dupont Moretti is one of these. Before he was appointed by Macron in 2020 as the justice minister, uh, he was a lawyer, and he was a very high-profile one. His clients include Julien Assange, uh, Karim Benzema, the French footballer, uh, the Corsican terrorist Jan Colonna, and just dozens of other names. His nickname during his legal days was L'Ogre du Nord, uh, the ogre of the north, because he's from northeast France, and he looks a little bit like Shrek. Interesting. He is actually the first sitting French justice minute to be mise en examen or charged. Now, the second figure is not so prominent publicly, perhaps, but just as important to Macron. 
Yeah, this is Alexis Cola, and you've probably never heard of him because he has one of those jobs that are very important but totally away from the public eye. And he's also a really average-looking guy. Honestly, you could look at photos of him all day and still not be able to describe him. He's just one of those sort of anonymous political figures. His job title in French is a bit of a mouthful. He is the Secrétaire Général de la Présidence de la République Française. But in English, they usually just call him Macron's Chief of Staff. He's the fixer, essentially. Uh, he's at the Elysée. He's been in that role ever since Macron was first elected in 20. 17, and he's usually described as being very close to, to Macron. He's kind of his, his right-hand man. And like Dupont Moretti, his charges also relate to his previous job. Uh, before he was in the Elysee, he worked at France's Agency for Public Investment. And in 2010 and 2011, that awarded contracts to a firm which was run by Cola's mother's cousin. He's accused of failing to disclose his connection to that company, basically, when those contracts were awarded. And he too denies any wrongdoing. Okay, thanks for that. Now, look, Macron's lost a few ministers and advisers close to him since the beginning of his presidency in 2017 for various scandals, accusations, even, you know, criminal charges. Just remind us of a few, Emma. Yeah, I think the worst scandal, really, for the Macron presidency was one that came right at the start of his term, and it's what's called in France l'affaire Benalla. It refers to a man called Alexandre Benalla. He was... Macron's security chief and during the May Day protests in 2018 he was caught on camera wearing a police armband despite never having been a police officer and beating up protesters. This was a huge scandal and it was made even worse because the Elysee initially kind of tried to cover it up and minimise it before accepting that he had to go. I think part of the reason why that became so big was the fact it was caught on camera and it was pretty shocking, you know, what he did, grappling protesters to the ground. Yeah, it was pretty awful. And it was also kind of the first scandal of the Macron presidency, I think. So you had this sort of, you know, young new president who was promising to change everything and then this scandal came along. So it was really like the end of Macron's honeymoon period, if he ever really had one. Yeah, but it wasn't the first, was it? Or the last, I should say. Uh, no, no, the, the scandals continued. My favourite one, I have to say, was back in 2019, uh, a guy called François de Rugy. He was the environment minister at the time. And he was accused... Of of hosting lavish champagne and lobster dinners in his official residence, which were paid for by the taxpayer for people who basically had no role or importance to the government. Essentially, they were his mates. He was having fancy dinners for his mates and he was putting them on, on the public tab. His defence for that was particularly good. He said that I'm allergic to lobster and champagne gives me a headache. That was his response to this. But eventually he ended up resigning as well. Fantastic. And uh, even more recently, we had another uh, scandal involving one of Macron's ministers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, much more recently, in fact, just before the recent parliamentary elections, we had uh, a guy called Damien Abad. He had been an MP for quite a long time but he was previously from the centre-right party and he defected to Macron's party and Macron appointed him the Minister for People with Disabilities. He has a disability himself, a congenital condition. But a couple of weeks after this appointment, it was revealed that a number of women had accused him of rape. He didn't resign, he wasn't sacked, but there was a reshuffle shortly afterwards and he is no longer the Minister for Disabilities. OK, this seems like a good moment to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who will join us on the line from Normandy to shed some light on how serious these latest scandals are for Macron. John, previously Macron said that uh, ministers mise en examen or charged should resign. He doesn't seem to stick to that anymore. Is that a sign that he's not too bothered about these scandals involving uh, these latest two figures? Well, I, it's very difficult to tell how serious these allegations are, quite frankly. Mise en examen is a kind of slippery concept in France, and it's, I think, therefore, 
Macron was rather foolish or, or uh, put himself hostage to fortune by saying that anyone resigning as a man in his government should have to resign straight away. He's not been keeping to that for quite a while now. And I don't think any of the sets of allegations against the justice minister or against the head of the Elysee office are, are sufficiently serious that he probably felt he needed to um, go back or, or go along with that. So I suspect that this isn't it may be interesting, be interesting to see how far they go. And obviously, if they either are formally charged at some point or renvoyé before a court, then Macron would have to react, I think. But mise en examen is a fairly... I've been mise en examen twice, Ben. Oh, um, what for, John? <laughs> well, once for libel, once for invasion of privacy. No, three times, actually. Another time for libel as well. None of them amounted to very much, I have to say. Yeah, you're not uh, talking to fined... us from inside a prison cell, are you, John? No, I was fined one franc on one occasion, and I think one euro on another, and acquitted on the third. So, uh, Good to know. Yeah, so almost everyone in France has been in these on examen, I think, at some point in their lives. Is this, I mean, exactly how you mentioned, I mean, this is uh, nothing new to have for Macron or even previous French presidents to have scandals or allegations tabled at ministers. Are the French public quite blasé about this kind of, you know, affair emerging now? I think it depends on the circumstances. You know, if it's something, you know, that they can really understand as being a serious allegation of criminal activity, yes, they, they care about that. The time when the previous uh, finance minister under uh, budget minister, I think, under, under Hollande was accused, uh, was mise en examen, then accused of having fiddled on his taxes for many, many years because he was a quite a senior doctor. And that uh, disturbed people and that was very damaging to the government. I think these two affairs are a bit too kind of inside baseball, a bit too confusing for people to really understand and therefore probably, probably less damaging. Interesting. And Macron himself has stayed fairly free from any kind of scandal or accusation or, you know, God forbid, being mise en examen himself. It just seems to be those around him. Is he a bad judge of character? Well, you, I don't think he can be mise en examen while he's president. That's something that Jacques Chirac got away with for many years. Well, I, you know, I don't think if you look back that the the, the, the record of the two Macron uh, mandates is actually that bad compared to you know, the numbers of people who, who were alleged to have done wicked things or less than wicked things maybe on, on the previous presidents. I think mm. overall, I think it's just sort of, you know, the way France is a very litigious country. You know, it doesn't take very long for, for people to be mise en examen. I think there was uh, allegations brought that against against Elizabeth Bourne, the prime minister, uh, you know, so... <laughs> Often these things are fairly, uh, fairly uh, tenuous, quite frankly. Mm, thanks, John. OK, moving on now. Each week on Talking France, we look at certain parts of the country that are in the news. And this week, it's the turn of numerous cities and towns across the country. In fact, a growing number of cities led by the capital Paris have made headlines because of their decision to effectively boycott the upcoming World Cup in Qatar. Jen, explain what this boycott is all about. Yes, so... Paris, Marseille, Bordeaux, Lille, Strasbourg, Nancy, Reims and Rodez so far have announced that they're not going to broadcast any matches of the World Cup on écran géant, which is the French word for giant or jumbo screens. And they're also not going to be setting up fan zones. And we're looking at a list that's probably going to continue growing as we get closer to the World Cup, which is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, so it's worth pointing out, however, that this doesn't mean that restaurants or private establishments like bars are banned from broadcasting the tournament. The boycott uh, has to do with whether or not these cities are going to be choosing to broadcast 
the games on giant screens. On giant screens or in fan zones, as is often the case during previous World Cups. Now, what is the justification being given by authorities in these towns and cities? Well, it has a lot to do with the general controversy that's been surrounding the 2022 World Cup, really since it was decided to be hosted in Qatar. So many people are concerned about human rights and the treatment of migrant workers who were hired to build the infrastructure. And one of those people is the mayor of Strasbourg, uh, who referenced this in her statement about why the city is not going to be broadcasting the games. She said that it is impossible for us not to listen to the numerous alerts from NGOs denouncing the abuse and exploitation of migrant workers. Strasbourg, the European capital and seat of the European Court of Human Rights, cannot decently support these abuses. And the other reason that a lot of mayors have given, uh, many of whom are members of the Green Party in France, were the environmental impacts of the World Cup. So the whole tournament is expected to generate more emissions than the whole country of Iceland admits in a year, according to a report by FIFA World Cup organizers. And one example of a mayor who cited these reasons was Bordeaux's mayor, Pierre Humic, uh, who's also a member of the Green Party. And he said it's the job of mayors to say that we do not want to be complicit in this energy waste. So I would say that these two issues have been the focus. Others have made reference to LGBT rights, although I would say this hasn't been as much of a center point um, for the reasons why French cities have decided to boycott showing the event on screens in their cities. But uh, homosexuality is illegal in Qatar, and there is a pretty significant amount of concern about the safety of players and fans going to uh, the games there. Yeah, this subject is big in France. I think it's partly to do with the fact that the French are favourites or one of the favourites to win the World Cup. They are the holders. But there's more and more talk about a boycott and what could that mean, whether fans are just going to turn off the screens and not watch it. I think a lot of my French friends I've noticed in a WhatsApp group are uh, arguing among themselves about the, you know, whether they should boycott it or, you know, often they'll say, well, I'll boycott it until we play Argentina in the semi-final, then I'll definitely be turning the television on. We'll have to wait and see. I think it's obviously a personal choice for many but I think a lot will depend on how France does in the tournament. Just before we move on I know John's a big football fan. What do you make of this boycott of the World Cup in France John? Do you see it taking off or will it dissipate once France starts getting through to the quarterfinals semi-finals uh, of the tournament? I think it's going to be a weird World Cup you know that's clear anyway in the middle of the season in this odd place uh, with very few fans able to 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 actually go to the World Cup probably or m- much less than u- usual, it's going to be a very unusual World Cup. It was a very very bad decision to give it to, to Qatar. And what can you say? Um, uh, yes, I suppose that the, the people's interest in football will overwhelm their their scruples possibly in many cases. But I suspect that many of the towns which have decided not to have fan zones will not go back on that, and, and I think they're right to stick by their guns. Now, moving on. In my hand, I'm holding something very small. But it's something very precious that could be worth a lot of money in a few years, perhaps. It's a Paris Metro ticket, of course. Jen, I've been at the local for almost 10 years now, and I've lost count of the number of times I've written or read articles about Paris finally getting rid of these little tiny metro tickets in paper. Is it finally going to happen or not? Yes. So you're right that we've been talking about this for years and they are finally sort of being phased out starting on October 13th. So we're not talking about the individual paper tickets that you can get at metro stations. What we're talking about are the carnet, which is the French term for basically booklets or little packets of 10 metro tickets. And these are no longer going to be sold at 180 stations in the Paris region. And then during 2023, they're going to be gradually phased out entirely. So you won't be able to buy them anywhere on the RATP 
machine network or at the machines or at the counters. And yes, like we said, it, it can be a bit misleading. Um, you, if you're coming to Paris to visit, you don't have to worry about whether or not you'll be able to buy individual paper tickets. That's still going to be around for a while. But these carnets, they were actually supposed to be gone by the first quarter of this year, but that got derailed due to the pandemic and the ongoing war in Ukraine. And especially because there's been a global shortage of microchips that are necessary to make the smart cards that are supposed to replace the tickets eventually. And then even further into the future, the goal is for everyone to be able to use their smartphones to access the metro. Wow, you can travel on the metro with your smartphone. I'm still one of these people who buy these carnets, so I'm going to have to adapt to the future and download some apps. Emma, how do you get around the Paris metro? You actually use it. I use the app, yeah. There are several apps that let you... And you're basically buying a, a carnet, so I don't have like a monthly travel pass because I don't use the metro all that much. I like to walk if I can. But you can buy books of 10 just in a virtual way on your phone. And the good thing about this is they have some kind of fancy technology that means that even if your phone is off or if your battery has died, you can still swipe it and it still reads your ticket. And I honestly don't understand how this works, even though people keep explaining to me. I think it's magic, but it really does. That's fantastic. That was all my worry about your battery running out yeah all good okay jen you're gonna miss these paper tickets i think i'll miss them because like emma i actually use paper tickets well i I use the single use tickets pretty frequently now that my student ticket has run out um which that one was good for a year and i had it charged up for the entire year but yeah it'll, it'll be a bit disappointing i think it's definitely the end of an era Now, before we move on to our main topic of the week about Macron's parliamentary battles that lie ahead, it's time to return to an argument we had in last week's podcast that some listeners may remember. It was an argument started by you, Emma, when you declared that the Vendée was the best part of the French coastline. We decided to put it out to readers and let them decide and give us their own comments. Now, can you let us know, did they back you up? Is Vendée the best part of the French coastline? They did not back me up. Uh, Jen, as you remember last week, was making the case for Brittany and she was obviously much more persuasive than me because most of our survey respondents picked Brittany as the best beach in France, which is fine. Uh, It just means more room on the beaches for me in La Vendée, more oysters to eat and the rest of you can go to Brittany and get rained on. It's fine. And we will indeed. Yes, Brittany came out on top. Now, even in Brittany, there's a huge variety of coastlines to choose from. Many readers went for Morbihan in the south. Others mentioned the Côte d'Amour in the north just to the west of San Marlo and includes the incredible cut de granite rose. I don't know if you pair have been there. It's stunning. It's basically like being on the set of Star Wars for me. But Finisterre was the choice for many in Brittany. It's as west as you can get in mainland France. I picked out a comment by Rebecca Bright. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Rebecca. She lives in Paris. She loved Finisterre in France. Her recommendation was to go all the way to the Baie des Trépassés and stay at the old traditional hotel restaurant of the same name. I've actually stayed in this hotel. It's a wild place. It's fantastic for surfers and coastal hikers. I was actually looking on Google Street View this morning to try and remind myself whether I'd actually been there. And all you see is fog on Google Street View. It did actually pour down for the whole time we were there. Nevertheless, when the sun comes out, it is uh, fantastic and wild. But it wasn't just about Brittany, was it? The Many readers preferred the south. The Calanque National Park came up frequently between Marseille and Cassis. One reader, Ginny Kramer, I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, Ginny, says she loves this part of France because there's nothing like climbing pure white limestone cliffs rising out of the sea. The hiking is spectacular too. Corsica was another favourite spot on the coastline, but in the end, I think literally every part of the coast got a mention in our survey, which leaves me with the only possible conclusion is that we really are blessed in France, guys. We are, absolutely. So many great places to see. Definitely. 
When Emmanuel Macron was first campaigning to be president, he promised if elected, he would drag France into the 21st century. But his chances of reforming the country have been severely hampered by the fact that since June's parliamentary elections, he can no longer count on a majority in the Assembly Nationale to push bills through. But that doesn't seem to have deterred him from pushing through a number of controversial reforms set to go before MPs in the coming weeks and months. The battle lines are being drawn, but does Macron have any chance of bringing about his desired changes? And what happens if all goes wrong? Before we turn to John to get some analysis of how things might pan out in France, Jen, just talk us through these key battles. So Macron and his government have several battles that are coming up this fall, but we're going to focus on the main three. Uh, The first is unemployment reform, which is réforme de l'assurance chômage in French. And this is one of the most divisive bills to face the parliament. And it's already gotten opposition from the political left and unions. Basically, Emmanuel Macron's government wants to, quote unquote, improve the functioning of the labor market, as his labor minister, Olivier Dussopt, explained. And the ultimate goal of the reform is twofold. So basically, on one hand, they want to encourage a return to employment. And on the other hand, they want to change the system so that the qualifications for unemployment benefits change based on the status of the job market. So what they would like to happen would be stricter requirements when jobs are filled and more lax rules when there's high unemployment. And this reform could lead to changes in unemployment benefits in three ways. So one is eligibility requirements, meaning how many months you need to have worked in a two-year period before to qualify. The other is maximum duration, so how long you can stay on benefits. And finally, how the daily wage is calculated, and that's for select groups. The député in the Assemblée Nationale, the Parliament, have already begun examining this law, and it's set to be sent to the Senate uh, on October 25th, where it's inevitably going to be changed. Okay, before we move on to other reforms Macron is going to try and get through, just a word on unemployment benefit in France, just for the sake of listeners. Emma, they are incredibly generous, are they not, in comparison to countries like UK and US, for example? They are generous, yeah. Um, Unlike a lot of countries, there isn't a flat rate for benefits in France. They're calculated as a percentage of your previous income, with a maximum ceiling and a minimum, of course. So it really depends on how much you were earning before, really. But you can stay on this this rate for between two and three years, depending on your personal circumstances. And the idea is that it's a safety net while you find another job, that if you are unfortunate enough to lose your job, you should be able to maintain something at least close to your former standard of living so that you don't have to move house, your kids don't have to move schools, stuff like that. It is actually possible to get unemployment benefits of up to €5,000 per month, but obviously only really high earners get that, and it's a really tiny percentage of people who are on that. And of course, those high earners will have paid plenty of tax into the system over the years. Of course, and these aren't just people who've kind of resigned from their high-earning job, these are people who've lost their job. You know, I think I read a stat, 50% of unemployed people in France aren't on Achon Chomage at all it's only for people who've lost their job for example yeah exactly you can't just like walk out in a huff and immediately start pocketing five grand a month unfortunately otherwise i'd be off exactly okay so that's unemployment reform always a sensitive issue here in france and one that brings the unions out onto the streets. Another is pensions, Jen. Yes, or réforme des retraites in French. While there won't be a bill on this front in Parliament in the near future, it is still going to be a battleground this autumn, as we discussed last week. Unions are gearing up for a fight, and many of the people that I spoke to at last week's protest said they were prepared to go to similar lengths as they did for the 2019 protests, which, as we mentioned, were historically long in the effort of fighting against pension reform. So Macron's government has tabled their 
their plans to add an amendment on pension reform, but they're going to do a consultation on the topic. So basically, this means they're going to be sitting down with unions to iron out the details uh, for the text of the law, which we imagine will include raising the pension age from 62 to 64, 65. And that would be prepared before Christmas. And the president wants that to be voted on in early 2023. So he's in a rush for that. Okay, and then not forgetting the 2023 budget that he needs to get through. Yes. So that is our final battleground. Uh, Parliament is going to start debating the draft 2023 budget on October 10th or the Projet de loi des finances pour uh, 2023. And as a quick summary or reminder, it basically extends the tariff shield on energy and it increases salaries for teachers and other public employees because of inflation. The government is hoping to borrow a hefty 270 billion euro to finance it. So as you can imagine, there's a little bit of a discussion around that. But the real question this time is whether Les Républicains or the right wing party are going to play ball. So they've already expressed their disapproval for the budget and have said that they don't plan on voting for it. But it really depends on whether they're going to abstain or vote against it. And if they abstain, Macron's majority might still be able to pass it through. But if they vote against it, then things might get a bit more tricky. Okay, Emma, this is a fairly ambitious reform programme for a president without a majority in Parliament. How's this going to pan out? Yeah, it's all pretty complicated for Elizabeth Bourne, the Prime Minister, whose job it is to actually steer the, the Macron government's legislation through the Parliament. Although the, the la, they're still the largest bloc, Macron's La République en Marche party, along with its centrist allies Modem and Horizons, they're the biggest bloc in Parliament, but they no longer have an overall majority. They've also failed to form any kind of coalition or even make informal alliances with other parties. Bourne did manage to get a couple of bills through Parliament before the end of the summer session, but these were on pretty uncontroversial topics like financial aid packages for households, so really very few MPs were going to oppose that. These new bills are a much tougher proposition and they're very controversial. OK, so what's Macron going to do here if, you know, as, as expected, they get defeated in a parliamentary vote. Does he just give up? No. If that happens, then the government has the option to use what's known as Article 49.3. This is an article of the French Constitution, which gives the government the power to force bills through Parliament, even without a majority vote. It can only be used for financial bills, or it can be used for a non-financial bill, but only once per parliamentary term. So if you use it for a non-financial thing now, he won't be able to use it again until the end of this parliamentary term. It's actually fairly regularly used by French presidents down the years. Uh, Francois Hollande used it six times, so did Georges Pompidou. Jacques Chirac used it eight times uh, during his presidency. He's got the record right now. But it obviously does open the president up to the charge of being anti-democratic and sort of failing to respect the will of the, the parliament, who are, after all, the elected representatives of the people. If Macron does decide to use this Article 49.3 to push through the pension and the unemployment reforms, the opposition then has the option to table a motion of no confidence in the government. If they decide to do this, and if the motion is passed, Macron has said that he will dissolve the parliament and call newer parliamentary elections as he has the right to do under the constitution. So you'll notice there's a lot of ifs there, but you can see this is really becoming an increasingly high stakes gamble for both sides. There is a lot of ifs indeed, and I think to help us sort through some of those ifs and to find out what lies ahead, it's time to bring in John Litchfield, our politics expert who joins us on the line again from Normandy. John, we've been talking about the parliamentary battles ahead for Macron. He wants to push through quite an ambitious programme of reform, given he doesn't have a majority in parliament. Is he a lame duck for the next five years? Could we face new elections? What? What? How do you see this panning out? Well, it's very interesting. Macron seems to have been sort of 
people say drifting, going hither and thither about what he can do. Can he have a successful domestic mandate uh, without a parliamentary majority? Does he possibly need to go for another election? Does he need just to settle for the fact that his his role in the next five years is to be um, a sort of international statesman and a, and a sort of troubleshooter and crisis manager at home? Or does he try and push through his reform agenda as he, as he outlined it during the presidential campaign? I mean, a lot of this reform agenda in his first term was not completed, partly because of the long COVID pandemic. So he's looking at the possibility of having served two terms as president without having achieved a great deal of what he initially set out to achieve. So I think he's been casting around and trying to decide what to do. I think he seems to have decided to use the limit to the legal powers he has under the Constitution to push through legislation without necessarily getting a majority in Parliament. There is a, um, this is something that de Gaulle put into the Constitution because he didn't want a parliamentary system of government. He wanted a system of government which could cut through the, the Gordian knot of Parliament when it's necessary because of the problem as he saw it in the previous uh, republic, in the Fourth Republic, when Parliament was a sort of a confusing uh, institution and, and didn't seem to get very many things done, he he the, the new the constitution, which has been changed a little since then, but not much, has in it this this power under Article Forty Nine. Clause three of the Constitution, which says that governments can declare legislation essentially to be law, and the only way you can stop that happening is if you call a uh, if the opposition calls a, a vote of no confidence in the government within forty eight hours. I think, and if that's passed against the government, then the legislation does not pass, and the government is, in the sense, under an obligation to resign. And possibly the president is under obligation or feels it necessary to call new elections. That has never actually happened to that extent. There have only been, I think there's only been one occasion since 1958 in the present constitution when uh, such a vote of confidence has been passed against the government. The limitation on that is he can only do it once in a non-financial bill in, in each year's session. Uh, with financial bills, he can do it as often as he wants. So he can push budgets through endlessly by that, although it doesn't look good to have to do that. He can, which is why he wanted to tag the, the pension reform onto a social security budget so that he could he could do it without using up his one joker, if you like, of a 49-3 legislation, uh, which was not financial in any given year. He's now been persuaded that that wouldn't be a good idea, and he seems to be looking at pushing through the reform as the one big le uh, re legislation he can get through under 49-3 in this parliamentary session. But he can get through the budget, yeah, the Social Security budget, any budgetary proposals he wants to put forward, he can get through in that way. But for a government to be constantly to having to be pushing through things like that way and constantly risking the possibility of a vote of confidence against them looks like it's anti-democratic. It looks like it's sort of against the will of the people. It's a difficult thing to be, keep on doing. And at some point, maybe there would be a vote of confidence uh, passed against them. And then Macron would be confronted with the prospect of having to call an election. Would that suit him? Maybe it would if he felt he could win it. But if you were having a long winter of discontent this year, is he likely to win or do better in a parliamentary election next spring or next summer than he did this last June? Seems unlikely. So all of these things are kind of difficult to read, quite frankly, at the moment. I think he's decided to play hardball. I think he's decided that, that this reform must go through. It's necessary, the pension reform, and that if he doesn't put that through, he'll be able to do nothing this term. And that if he wants to get that through, then there may be more possibilities for other, mm. for other reforms later. 
Our Talking France podcast is free for listeners, but it's only possible thanks to our paying members. If you like what you hear, then please spread the word and help us reach new listeners. You can do this by leaving a review on Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify, or you could just introduce the podcast to your friends and family. And don't forget, if you'd like to become a member of The Local, you can get a discount at thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Thanks to all of our listeners. Okay, it's time for our reader question about France. Now, we talked last week about the possibility of grève in the autumn. Of course, we're talking about strikes. Now, whenever we talk about strikes in France, many people often will roll their eyes or mutter something about, oh, the French are always on strike. Emma, is this true? Are the French always on strike? Is Are they the biggest strikers out there? <laughs> well, yeah, once you're rolling off French cliches, it won't be long before strikes come up. And yes, it is true, they do strike quite a lot. Uh, the French rail operator SNCF has recorded at least one rail strike every year since 1946. But champion world strikers, well, it kind of depends a bit on what data you look at. So I'm looking at some OECD data on the number of strike days per 1,000 workers. And if you look long term at the period from uh, 1916 to 2016, France is actually 10th in the world. It's behind Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Canada, countries that really don't have a reputation for striking. So why do we get this impression that the French are always on strike then? Well, the more recent data has France either at the, the head of the class or, or second in the class. But there are some other countries that are similar, Denmark again, Cyprus. So the French aren't really European outliers. But I think to answer your question that the image really comes from the type of strikes that we have here in France. They usually target public services, trains, planes, schools. So they really impact on people's daily lives. They're deliberately targeted to be as disruptive as possible. So anyone involved in sort of airline workers, they always try and strike at the start of the summer holidays when it's really going to have an impact. And they're loud. They're accompanied by marches, demos, pickets. They're very noisy. They're very attention seeking, although they are very rarely violent. Strikes in France, they're, they're inconvenient, but you're not going to be unsafe during a strike in France. Okay. And I think, yeah, the fact that they do affect travel so often, including international travel one of the reasons they make headlines you know in other countries as well because they affect a lot of people thanks emma now if you live in france or you're just planning to visit or you're learning french or you want to immerse yourself in french culture then it's always handy to have some tips and recommendations to save you all that time researching so we've decided to share some of ours with listeners it could be a new french film or tv series a podcast or an app to help you learn the lingo, a restaurant recommendation, or somewhere off the beaten track in France you really need to visit. We have some recommendations for you. And if you have any of your own and you'd like to share with listeners, you can email them to us at news at the local.fr. To start us off this week, Jen, fire away. I am recommending my favorite French podcast, Transfer. Uh, it's produced by Slate Podcast, so if you don't like Transfer, you can always check out another one. But I really like it because every week it's a different story that's told, and they're usually very compelling personal stories. People will read their own monologue aloud, and it's sometimes sad. Uh, sometimes it's just very interesting or crazy, um, but it's always really entertaining, and it's a great way to listen to spoken French and to also try to understand different people's manners of speaking um, so you can build your French vocabulary and you can also just kind of build your listening skills in general while enjoying a podcast episode. Okay, and Emma, 
What about you? Yeah, I, I'm recommending Au Service de la France. This is a, a French TV series from the channel Arte. It's not new, but it is available now on Netflix, where its English title is a very secret service, and obviously there's, there's the option for English subtitles for it as well, if you'd rather have that. I'm recommending it mainly just because it's very funny, but I think it does also teach you some things about France, about its history, and it's a really good example of the French laughing at themselves. I think, for some reason, the French have this kind of reputation for not really being able to poke fun at themselves, but this series shows it's absolutely not true. It's a spy series. It's set in the early 1960s in the French secret services and it follows a new recruit to the service named André Mello. It's got lots of twists and turns and very sort of classic spy storylines, but what you really notice is that most of the agents are just obsessed with their prime, which is their, their bonuses for workers, their pause déjeuner, their lunch breaks, and of course the workplace pull, which is afterwards drinks. And meanwhile, the bosses are entirely focused on just having forms and paperwork for everything, all of which needs to be tamponé or rubber stamped. So it's really taking aim at some of the, the French obsessions like bureaucracy. Okay, well, I better check it out. Now, what about me? I mean, you two are obviously culture vultures. I've gone for something a bit more practical to get uh, listeners out and about. I've gone for a website called Jogging Plus. It doesn't sound very French. It doesn't actually, because uh, the French word for jogging is footing, I think. Isn't yeah, it? should it not be footingplus.com? Yeah. yeah, however, if you type this in, you will find fun runs all around France. You just put in your address, your département, or wherever you live, and it gives you a list of runs you can do around France. There is loads, especially in the Paris region, which interests me. Each arrondissement seems to have like a 5K or a 10K run. There's walks, there's charity runs. It's really good. Look, guys, it's that time of year. We should be getting out. We should be exercising. Jen, can I interest you in joggingplus.com? Honestly, you can. I'm interested. Do they have a turkey trot? <laughs> a what? A turkey trot. A what the hell is a turkey trot? We have American listeners, and for the American listeners, you know what this is. The turkey trot is when you take a little jog on Thanksgiving, and it's usually a 5K. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see if they've got a turkey trot. Um, although I have my doubts. But it's a great website for getting out and about and discovering your area and, of course, staying healthy and exercising. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget, feel free to spread the word if you like our podcast and always leave a review where you listen to it if you can. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. 